Please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. You can also follow along on page 7 in your bulletin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Josh. I have the honor and privilege uh, to serve as one of the pastors here at Metro Church. Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to kick off a new mini-sermon series that we're starting here in the month of May. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans. Now, if you've been growing up in church or if you've gone to church for a little bit, you might know that the book of Romans is, is oftentimes known as, as Paul's theological treatise, where um, it has robust doctrine. It has some lofty theological um, really definitions that are essential to the Christian faith. Uh, but what's interesting is that the Apostle Paul, when he opens up his letter in the book of Romans, he identifies himself by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. He's telling us that he's not coming and writing to you as a scholar or as a theologian. He's writing to you as a servant, as a shepherd, as a pastor. Because even with all these lofty doctrines that we read in the book of Romans, Paul actually imparts us an encouragement that we all need, that we can find rest by faith in the righteousness and justification that we have in Christ Jesus, that we have a new identity and joy by faith in the adoption we have in Christ Jesus, and that we can look ahead to a future glory with great hope because we've been given a promise by faith in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, today we're going to look at Romans chapter 3. Now, in, in Romans 1, Paul is uh, inviting his readers, the, the early church of Rome, uh, really the reason why he's writing this letter to them. And uh, in chapter 2, he, he uh, refers to the judgment and the wrath of God on the unrighteous. And he also talks about how all mankind um, know God but chooses to suppress the knowledge of God. And in the beginning of Romans chapter 3, he says that no one is righteous, not just the unrighteous who uh, are irreligious, but also the religious people, 
also those who've used religion and God's law to give them a sense of righteousness. And so what Paul is actually saying here in Romans 3, that we all have a righteousness problem. We all have a problem with justifying our own existence, whether you're a religious person or whether you're an irreligious person. And so today we're going to look at really the center of our hearts and the center of all our problems. We're going to look at our righteousness problem. And so first we're going to look at what is the righteousness of God that the Apostle Paul is referring to. Second, we're going to look at why we need it. And third, we're going to look at how we get it. What is the righteousness of God? Why do we need it? And how do we get it? First, what is the righteousness of God? Now, we take a step back for a moment. The word righteousness is not a term that we typically use when we're conversing with our friends. Like, I don't go out to eat dinner with Pastor Donnie and say, you're really exuding with righteousness these days. Or hang out with my friends and talk about how righteous of a person you might be. But the reality is, Paul here is using a forensic language, a language that you would use in the court of law. He uses terms like righteousness and justification, and the laws and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness of God. And so although the term righteousness might seem somewhat foreign, and a lot of us might be even adverse to it, we have to have a deeper understanding of what this righteousness that Paul is referring to actually means. Now, the word righteousness is used more than 500 times in the Old Testament. And we've just gone through a series called God's Presence in Our Brokenness. And we've seen that throughout all of Israel's history, they've tried to obtain and achieve righteousness based off of their obedience of the law, their good works, the things that they can offer to God, but not what God has been offering to them. And so on one hand, righteousness does refer to your morality. It refers to your ethics or your your goodness. Uh, But on the other hand, righteousness also refers to the fruit of your goodness, the fruit of your morality or the the fruit of um, your ethics. Righteousness refers to the reality that if you are good, then you are accepted. Your approval, the good things that you do, Because you do them, then you are deemed good. This is the righteousness that Paul is talking about here. He's he's talking to the early church in Rome. And so you have Jews and you have Gentiles. You have religious people and non-religious people coming together because of the gospel of Christ. But there's been a history and a generation of people who have been chasing after righteousness and trying to justify their existence based off of good works that they were able to do for themselves. And so Paul is is speaking to the foundational pillars of their lives. And he's saying that they're shaky. Because no matter how hard you try to be, be obedient to the law, no one is righteous, not even one. You see, religious people are in pursuit of a a sense of righteousness based off of what they're able to do. They're trying to gain acceptance and approval from God, to be right with God, to to avert the judgment and wrath of God. And the righteousness of God isn't something that uh, we can earn through our own works. This is what Paul is trying to tell us, that righteousness is given only by faith in Christ and his redeeming work on the cross. And yet, although we know that in our minds and in our heads and our hearts, we tend to believe something else. Paul 
expounds on this idea of righteousness. Later on in chapter 3, he uses the term justification. And when you look at the original language of the Greek New Testament, we see that the word righteousness and justification are one and the same. And so what Paul is saying that the righteousness of God is free justification that's given to you by faith, not by what you can do for yourself. And for those of us who, who resonate with religiosity, those of us who grew up in the church or, or tend to find our identity on the good things that we're able to do for ourselves, uh, we, we um, mistreat the law and misuse the law. I call it the, the unholy trinity. There's, there's ways where um, we misuse the law by, by measuring God's goodness with the law. And what we do is we say, hey, because I'm obedient, because I've been doing what you commanded me to do, I deserve the things that I want. And so a lot of us treat God and treat God's law as if it's currency or a way that we can bargain with God. We say, hey, I go to church, I attend community groups, I volunteer and serve in different ministries. In fact, I lead some of them as well. I do all the things that you want me to do. I'm morally right. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't hurt others physically. I don't kill. I'm not a criminal. I study hard. I work hard. I honor my parents. I do all the things that you commanded me to do. Now just give me this one thing that I want so bad. And we could put, fill in the blanks with anything that's on our hearts. We say to God, We've done all the things that you asked me to do, so now I can have that job that I want. We say to God, I've done everything you wanted me to do, now I can have that relationship that I, I, I long for in my soul. We measure God's goodness based off of God's law. And when he doesn't give us the things that we want, we actually start to doubt his goodness. We actually say, well, maybe God isn't good. I've been listening to his commands. I've been obeying them. I've been doing everything he's been asking me to do, but why isn't he giving me the things that I want? And so we doubt God and we question God's goodness. And in fact, we actually start to question even his existence. If this is what God wants me to do, how come he's not giving me what I need? Second, when we misuse God's law, we misuse it by measuring our own righteousness. We have a distorted view of ourselves. Because we are doing good things and we're obeying God's law, we're serving the church, we're doing the, the Christian thing, we oftentimes think that we're actually good because we're doing these things. I, I've been in pastoral ministry for just a, a short few years, and I've been preaching for not that long. And every time I do preach, one of the most painful things is I, I sit down, I open up a text, and um, I say to myself, okay, well, I need, to, I need to study what this text means, how I'm going to say it. I got to say it in a clever way so that people can understand what I'm trying to say. And then after I preach a sermon, you get affirmation, and you, and you see if, whether or not people actually enjoyed it or if people were moved by it. And, and this week, even as I'm studying Romans chapter 3, I'm having these feelings, and I realize I have to repent of my righteousness. Because I look at that text and then Paul is reminding me once again that I have been justified freely, not by how well I preach, but by what Jesus has done for me on the cross. 
This is the struggle of, of being a young pastor and a young preacher. This is the struggle for all of us. Whether we find our identity or our sense of righteousness in our careers, in our families, in our school, in our status, those are the things that drive you to perform well. And if you perform well, then you'll be accepted, then you'll be made right. Another way that we misuse God's law is not only do we measure God's goodness, not only do we measure our goodness, we measure the goodness of other people around us. We see people who we look up to, people that we deem to be righteous and holy and good, and oftentimes we put them on a pedestal as if they're in the position of God. And so how we relate to them is always to gain their acceptance and their approval. If this person is telling me that I am a good person or if I am doing things the right way, then I am a good person and I'm doing things the right way. I'm worthy. I have acceptance. This is what I've been living for. And so we look at these people that we deem righteous and holy and unfairly we treat them like objects and not a person. We view them as our priest, our, our savior, the person that's going to tell us that we are okay. And when that person doesn't live up to your standards, what happens? You're disappointed. You're let down. Maybe I was wrong about them. What we have to realize is it's true. We need people that we look up to. We need people to help guide us and, and help us as we walk along in this life. But they're not meant to make decisions in your lives for you. They're meant to help guide you and speak practical wisdom to you not give you personal and prescriptive advice to make decisions for you. Another way we measure people with God's law is we see people and we say, hey, these people aren't worthy. We look down on people. Even within this community here, we see people that we might not get along with and, and we kind of put this, this ruler against them and they're not measuring up to what you believe is good. And oftentimes you're very averse to them because if you get close with them, then their badness is rubbing off on you. And the reality is that we just don't become winsome people. We look at people as not another person to be in community with, somebody that isn't worthy of your time or of your presence or, or your money or, or anything. They just become second-class citizens in your life. And see, this is, this is the problem when we try to use God's law or our goodness to measure our righteousness or measure the righteousness of others. The reality is that we ourselves will fail. God's law was never meant to earn righteousness to earn a sense of goodness, or to justify your existence. In fact, God's law was given to us so that we can diagnose what our problem is, and it points us to the solution. When I was 18 years old, I, um, I still had dreams of being a ball player, and I was somewhat fit, and I, I thought that I could uh, make it playing ball, and, and you know, I love playing basketball, I love playing football, and um, I was doing my best Hakeem Olajuwon impression and I was posting up against my friend, and um, I, had, I had tried to do a spin move towards the basket, but I kept my pivot foot on the ground, and uh, I heard a big pop on my knee, and I ended up tearing my ACL. 
Um, but immediately after that injury, I drove to the hospital to the ER, and um, I went under uh, MRI. And that MRI showed, showed me that I had a completely torn ligament in my right knee. And the problem was I had a torn ligament, but the MRI couldn't fix the problem. It just told me what the problem was. And in the same way, we use God's law. We need to use God's law like an MRI. But we treat God's law as if it's the surgery and the solution that's going to actually fix our problem. The point is God's law helps, helps us diagnose what our problem is, but it points us to the solution that we actually have. And so righteousness means that we're trying to gain acceptance not only through God's law, but really everything in our lives. And so second, I want to talk about why we need this righteousness of God that Paul is talking about here. Paul's saying that we've tried to find righteousness not only through God's law, but everything in our lives. You know, the reality is when we're confused and we're trying to figure out about what's going on in our lives, the only thing that can make sense of our lives is actually the Bible, right? Because in Genesis, we see God creates all things, and he creates man and woman, and he says this is very good. And in the Garden of Eden, we see, um, we see a contentment, a peace, a sense of acceptance. God is in relationship with his creation, and the creation is in relationship with the creator, and everything is good. But when Adam and Eve fall into sin, rebellion against God, they're kicked out of the garden and kicked out of God's presence. And ever since that story in Genesis 3 happened in our history, we've been doing everything we can to get back into God's presence, to act, to get back to a sense of rightness with God, to get back to uh, a, uh, an approval from God, our creator. And this is the problem. Now, if you consider yourself an irreligious person right now, and in this moment you might be saying, hey, Josh, I get it. You know, you, you told me I can't become righteous through God's law or through my obedience or through my faithfulness, but, you know, I don't really know how I feel about this God stuff. I don't really know how I feel about church and Christianity. Um, I, I think that I can be okay by simply uh, just being a decent person, being a, a law-abiding citizen, and still pursuing the things that I love, the things that make me happy. When we think about that argument, that argument is flawed. Because when we think about that argument, you might not be finding your righteousness through religiosity, but you might be finding your righteousness through your family. You might be finding acceptance through your career, your status, your wealth. These things that we use, these creative things in our, in, our, in our lives, we are using these things to ultimately justify our existence. If I get the right family, if I get the right career, if I get the right 401k, if I have the right amount of income, if I have the right house, if I have uh, the, the right car, the right vehicle, if I, am, if I am seen to have good status, then my existence will be justified. You know, many of us try to find our righteousness or, or our sense of worth and value uh, as parents. And, and when we think about it, when we're really being honest, you know, some of you who are parents, 
You've made a vow and a covenant to your spouse and not your children. But a lot of times, you live your life and act as if you made that vow and covenant to your kids. And so you engulf your children. You pour out into your children. You do everything you can for their success and for their thriving and for their joy and for their happiness. And in your pursuit of all those things, you neglect the very thing that you actually were committed to, your husband or your wife. See, this sense of righteousness and acceptance, it's all around us. It's in everything that we do. Even when you enter into the career, a career in your life, what do you end up doing? You send in a resume. You list out all the good things that you've done, that 4.0 GPA, all that extracurricular activity, the volunteering you've done for nonprofits, and, and then you hopefully get an interview, and in that interview, you show your skills and your competencies and your talents and your gifts, and, and you really try to convince the person, that manager or that future boss of yours, that you're worth being hired. When we apply to schools and universities, uh, postgraduate college, what are we doing? We're sending in our resumes, what we've accomplished as, as children, as teenagers in high school. Uh, we're showing all that we've done in order to be accepted. But even on a social level, we do that. When we're looking to date somebody, we always put on our best selves. We're always putting on our best selves that, that deems us worthy for that access with that person that we want to be with. We do that in all areas of our life. We're always searching for righteousness and acceptance. We're always trying to justify our existence. But see, the problem with that is you're only as good as your last performance. Right? If, you, if you get this job that you've been dreaming of, if you, if you get this girlfriend or this boyfriend that you've been hoping to get all your life, you're only as good as you were yesterday. Right? Like growing up in Philly, I was a huge Eagles fan. I was a diehard football fan. And I remember growing up most of my life saying to myself and saying to my friends, if the Eagles just win one Super Bowl, I can die, be happy, be with Jesus, and I'm good. Right? And in, in 2017, the Eagles thankfully actually won that Super Bowl, and, and I was ecstatic. But once that 2018 season came around and we didn't win, I was miserable. We're only as good as our last performance. And if we're trusting in our own ability to be righteous, to be accepted, to justify our existence, we're always going to let ourselves down. If we try to find righteousness and acceptance in our careers, we're constantly going to pour ourselves into our jobs. We're going to sacrifice all the other things in our lives. We're going to sacrifice our families, our friends, our energy, even our worship. And if we continue to chase after that sense of righteousness and acceptance in our jobs and in our careers, oh, what ends up happening is that we need to produce results. And if we produce results, everything is pretty good for the, for the moment, but uh, eventually you're going to get tired and flake out. And eventually you are going to drop the ball at work. And your boss and your manager isn't going to look at you and say, well, you've done good for the most part of your career. I'll let this one slide. We're always being measured on our performance. If we, if we are trying to find our righteousness and our acceptance through our friends and the community around us, 
we're always trying to say and do the right things. Like, like a lot of us also are, are so um, wrapped up in not just our uh, social image, but our, our physical image, right? Like we're, we're centered around how we look, how we look, how we sound, how we talk, right? We're, we're, we're so worried about eating the right food. Sometimes we go the other way and we just eat what we want. We're so centered around looking good, looking right, having the right clothes, having the nice figure. We're constantly inundated through the internet and social media of, of what beauty actually looks like. And if we could attain these things that we've told ourselves are actually good, that's acceptable in our society, that's, that's going to deem us worthy and give us a sense of value, then we will be okay. But if we're being really honest, while a lot of these things are good, they ultimately fail us. If you trust in your career to bring you righteousness, what happens when you don't have a job anymore? If you trust in loved ones and family and children and spouses to, to find your sense of worth, God forbid, what happens when they get sick? What happens when you get sick? If you are finding acceptance based off of social status among your friends and in your community, what happens when you let them down? What happens when you fail to be that person that you've been trying so hard to be and all your hope is lost? What happens then? Tim Keller put it beautifully. When it comes to work, he said, if you make work your identity and you, you succeed, it'll go to your head. But if you fail, it'll go to your heart. And you could replace that work that word work with anything else in your life. If you make your friends and your status, your identity, if you succeed, it'll go to your head. You'll be proud, you'll be arrogant, you'll be gassed up. But if you fail, you'll be filled with anxiety, you'll be filled with fear, you'll be filled with doubt, and you'll be filled with unrest. Whether you consider yourself to be a religious person or an irreligious person, we're all looking to be righteous. We're all looking to justify our existence, to find acceptability, to, to give ourselves a sense of worth and a sense of value in everything that we do, whether we do it in the church or outside beyond these walls. Friends, we need the righteousness of God because when we try to find our own righteousness anywhere else in our lives, we fail. We fail miserably. We worship created things rather than worshiping the creator. This leads me to my final point. How do we get this righteousness of God that Paul has been referring to? How do we get righteousness and justification that isn't temporary but eternal? It's by faith. It's by faith. It's by faith where we receive the righteousness and justification of God. We can't earn it. We can't perform for it. We can't make sacrifices to it. We can only receive it. We have to understand that the Apostle Paul isn't diminishing God's law here. He's not saying that, the, that God's law is bad, that's, that it's not a good thing. He's saying what you've been using it for is bad. 
that you've been motivated to use God's law to give you a sense of righteousness and justification that you can't earn through it. It's meant to point you to the problem that the fact that you can't earn your righteousness, but I've earned it for you. He's not diminishing the law. He's not trying to nullify it or minimize it. He's actually trying to reveal what it points to. Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We uphold the law because Jesus has fulfilled it for us. Friends, the entire Bible, the law, the prophets, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospels, the epistles, the Revelation, it all points to Christ. It points to his coming and his dwelling with his people, his perfect obedience of the law, his ministries to sinners and sufferers, his death and his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection and his ascension as he advocates for you and intercedes for you, his second coming where he'll make all things new, wipe away every tear, and he'll make things perfect once again. It's all about Jesus, and he did this perfectly. In every moment of his life, Jesus observed the law. He internalized the law. He perfectly obeyed the law. He was perfectly intimate with his father, just so that when he looked at you and when he thought about what was to come, he would hang on that cross with joy. And he said, you were worth it. Jesus, who was perfectly righteous and obeyed God's law perfectly, is the only one who could justify us. But because he loves us and adores us, he's the only one that would justify us. In verse 25, Paul says, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Paul saying that when Jesus died on the cross, we have averted the wrath of God. Our sins have been blotted out. He's referring to the turning away of God's wrath and judgment for sinners like me and you. And so what Paul is saying here is Jesus became our sacrifice on the cross so that the penalty of sin and the debt being completely paid off so that we would be forgiven for our sins. But at the same time, We are justified, not only forgiven. Forgiveness has a a negative kind of reference when we think about it, right? Like when we're being forgiven, it's because we've done something wrong. And so on one hand, we are forgiven for our sins. But to be justified by God, to be justified by Christ, means that Jesus holds you up. And he says, you are my trophy. You are my prize. There's a positive note to what he's saying here. On one hand, our sins have been forgiven by the work of Jesus on the the cross. On the other hand, we have been made righteous and we are justified. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything Christ has done for us. And it's by faith in the gospel, it's by faith in the redeeming work of Jesus that we can find comfort and rest. We we don't have to work for our acceptance anymore. The gospel changes everything in our lives. 
When we put our faith in the redeeming work of Jesus, we become a new creation, a brand new person. The things that have brought us anxieties and has stirred up our fears and our doubts about ourselves are completely new because now we can identify with the Son of God who gave up his life gladly for us. Now we have the opportunity not only to repent of our sins, but now we have an opportunity to repent of our righteousness, the things that we find to justify our existence. Friends, this is good news. This is the end of laboring for your worth and for your value. This is the end of working to find an identity in this life. Receive it by faith. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. And because you are now declared righteous, friends, there's something that we can do now. At the end of this passage, Paul says, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Friends, by faith in Christ and his redeeming work for you that's made you righteous and justifies you, we're now able to be faithful. We are now able to obey the law properly. We obey the law not to earn acceptance by God, but we obey the law because we've been accepted by God. And we could be faithful and do good works. At the same time, we could have a tremendous confidence and humility that only the gospel can bring. On one hand, you could be confident in who you are because the creator of all things, the creator of the universe, sent his one and only son to die for you. There's nobody else who has more power and authority to, to, to do what Jesus has already done. And because he's done it, because he's accomplished the work on the cross, you can now be confident. And because it wasn't you who accomplished the work, you can have a great humility that you can never muster up yourself. It's a humility that goes beyond what, you, what good you're able to do for yourself. And friends, lastly, the Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans because it's his missional letter to help support his ministry. And that's why he goes over all these lofty doctrines and theological ideas that sometimes we have a hard time understanding. But he's saying, look at the good of the gospel. Look at what it's done for me. Look at what it's done for you. Because the gospel has transformed you, me, this community, we're then able to go on mission for God. We're able then to be generous with our money. We're then able to be generous with our time. We're then able to seek the advancement of our others here in this room and for our neighbors in the city. Why? Because we have a Savior who's done it for us. And we could trust in the righteousness in our Savior and not our service. Friends, this is good news. Will you go out today and remember the good news of the gospel that renews us each and every day? Let's pray.